Boker Tov, good morning. Welcome to our Aliyah Day. Glad that you're with me this morning. Rabbi Griffin here joining you live from uh, beautiful, the beautiful uh, uh, Saginaw, Texas area here at Sar Shalom Synagogue. And uh, glad everybody is uh, here, alive, safe, doing well. Baruch Hashem. We had some uh, crazy weather yesterday, some tornadic activities, which actually uh, led to our our Wednesday night classes being uh, canceled because we had some threat of bad weather, which did not happen, thank God, uh, did not happen in the nighttime. And then uh, we had, you know, it knocked out our internet for a while. So anyway, uh, but we're all good. We're all safe. Life as well. It is springtime in Texas, and so we have uh, those types of issues. But we are here this morning and ready to dive into the Torah. And so if you would, turn in your, uh, your Tanakhs or your uh, Humashim to the book of uh, Leviticus, the book of Vaikra. And we are in chapter 27, uh, the fifth Aliyah. Today is the fifth day of the week, already the fifth day of the week. The sixth day of the week will be here very shortly. It is the 40th day of the Omer, and uh, that's important because this is a day uh, in which uh, Yeshua HaMashiach ascended to Shemayim uh, from Mount, the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. Why the Mount of Olives? Why did Mashiach Yeshua, by the way, spend so much time on the Mount of Olives? Why did he make his ascension on the Mount of Olives? Rebbesin asked that question a number of years ago while we were in, in uh, Israel, and we found the answer while we were there. And something I didn't know, I learned this many, many years ago, that the Mount of Olives, another name of the Mount of Olives, is the uh, Mount of Atonement. Why? Because that is the mountain upon which the red heifer was uh, burned up. The ashes were made and everything. And so because the Mount of Olives was associated with the red heifer, which the red heifer is the, is the, the sacrifice that is, uh, is a must in order to even enter the sanctuary of God, because it is associated with that, it's called the Mount of uh, Atonement. So it makes sense then that Yeshua would spend so much time on the mountain that he would go there to pray. He would go there to the the Garden of Gethsemane. By the way, is um, on the Mount of Olives, <clears throat> the Mount of Atonement. So when they came to to retrieve Messiah Yeshua from the Garden of Gethsemane, they were ostensibly going to the place where they would have received, so to speak, the uh, red heifer, right? And so he makes his ascension on Mount of Olives which is the Mount of Atonement, Atonement being equated with Messiah Yeshua. So there's that. Uh, Baruch Hashem. So we have the fifth Aliyah. It is relatively short, just a few verses. Let's read it. If a man consecrates a field from his ancestral heritage to Adonai, the valuation shall be according to its seeding, an area seeding by a chomer barley for 50 silver shekels, if he consecrates his field from the jubilee year, it shall remain at its valuation. And if he consecrates his field after the jubilee, the Kohen shall calculate the money for him according to the remaining years until the jubilee year, and it shall be subtracted from its valuation. If one who consecrated the field will redeem it, 
He shall add a fifth of the money valuation to it, and it shall be his. But if he does not redeem the field, or if he had not sold the field to another man, it cannot be redeemed anymore. Then, when the field goes out into the Jubilee, it will be holy to Adonai. Like a segregated field, his ancestral heritage shall, be, shall become the Cohen's. Verse 22. But if he will consecrate to Adonai a field that he acquired that is not of the field of his ancestral heritage, then the Kohen shall calculate for him the sum of the valuation until the Jubilee year, and he pays the valuation of that day. It is holy to Adonai. That's the end of the reading of the fifth Aliyah. This chapter, chapter 27, began by, if you recall from yesterday, by saying that uh, if one is going to make a vow to Hashem, he wants to vow to Hashem the value of a person, um, perhaps himself, perhaps someone else. First of all, the, the valuation is accredited to, uh, to that as if the person had been offered themselves. So this takes us back to a concept that when we give financially, there is, there is a, a connection between giving financially and laying your life down on the altar. Okay, there is a connection there. But, nevertheless, this starts out by saying you can give financially uh, the valuation of a person, but, and then the Torah goes on to explain what those valuations are. It has nothing to do with uh, someone's intelligence. It doesn't have anything to do with whether the person is rich or poor, black or white, uh, taller or short, the only thing that matters is age of the person and the sex of the person. So again, we live in a day and age where people are confused. There are like seven or eight different categories for your sex. You should know the Torah has two. There is male and there is female. That's the only two categories that exist. This is confirmed in this chapter where God is saying you're going to account the valuation of the person, not if they're transgender, male to female, female to male, not if they're LBGTQ seven delta five seven eight nine ten, and it's rather are they male or female? That's the only ones that God knows. I saw a cute meme on Facebook a few weeks ago that said, "How come no archaeologists have found any transgender skeletons?" Thought that was very cute. Anyway, I digress. So someone asked me, <coughs> Rabbi, why does the Torah? give a higher valuation for males rather than females? How come the females are valued less in this discussion? And so I want to present a very deep uh, spiritual answer to that question today, which is, we don't know. Yes, that's right. You've heard it here first. We do not know. We This is a, <laughs> this is a hook. This is one of those laws of Torah that only God knows. There are, um, there are, there have been discussions, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about one uh, discussion that uh, Rabbi Monk brings down. But nothing is definitive, and, and many of the many of the supposed answers just present other questions. But I I want to begin first by relating a halacha from Rambam and also from the Talmud by Rabbi Yonatan. And this is, a, um, this is one of those moments that I like to share from time to time to equip people uh, uh, to be guarded against 
the false uh, t- teaching of, uh, the, of the Messianic Gentile, but in this particular case, of the Noahides. So those are very popular concepts. They've, they've only become popular. Well, the, the, the Messianic Gentile um, uh, idea is a complete fabrication of uh, Messianic Judaism uh, that's only been extant for about uh, 20 or 30 years, entirely based on the letters of Paul and the misunderstanding thereof, not based on any scripture or any Jewish thought whatsoever that has existed for thousands of years. Um, the Noahide thing is is found in the discussions in the Talmud, but it wasn't really popular. You don't find Jews uh, trying to go out and make Noahides or encourage Noahides until um, the mid-20th century, and that became popular vis-a-vis the Chabad movement. Prior to that, you there. Let me just let me just say this plainly and clearly. There is no historical evidence whatsoever, and believe me, I've studied nothing anywhere that suggests, even remotely, that Jews prior to the mid 20th century set about trying to encourage the nations of the world to become Noahides. Um, to the contrary. There is an abundance of evidence uh, from virtually every century that su- suggests that Jews ardently sought to convert Gentiles to become Jews. The uh, sources and historical sources for that are uh, extremely abundant and very detailed. So, um, if there's such thing as Noahides, then why are we running around trying to convert Gentiles, right? Just think it through. Don't answer. Um, but uh, the idea is you can be a Noahide and everything's A-OK in the USA. Same thing with Messianic Gentile. There's very little difference. Although I would say to the Messianic Gentile who's thinking that they're, that they're a Noahide and that that's A-OK because somehow you came across that on Google, you should know that you cannot be a Noahide and believe in the Messiah Yeshua. Because if you are someone who believes in the Messiah, then you are, by definition, not a Noahide because Noahides aren't Jews. And the Messiah is for Jews. I know. Think it think it through. But anyway, so it says here, Rambam and Ra'avad teach that since the valuation relates to the holiness of an individual Jew, a pagan, a.k.a. a Gentile, is not eligible for evaluation. All right. So I just want to mention this because, again, People are taught in the in the this time period of our life, in the last uh, couple of decades, that you can be a Noahide and everything's fine. Don't worry about it. No need to convert. Nothing to see here. Move along. Keep living your life. Everything's fine. Uh, there's a whole uh, history of where that came from, by the way, where that mindset came from, and it it, it would surprise you. Should I tell you? Do you want to know? Of course you want to know. All right, let me tell you. Um, I don't have my source here, so forgive me because I don't have the exact um, names of the parties involved. I don't think I have it here. Nope, I do not. All right, anyway. So this is going back to the mid-1600s. And back in that time period, this is the time in the... This is story time with Rabbi Griffin. Are you ready? All right, so back in the 1666 time frame, this is when Shabbatai Zavii... Uh, came to uh, to the forefront. He was the false Mashiach. And, but he took the entire Jewish world by storm. When I say entire Jewish world, I mean it. Not one sect, not one group, not one country. I'm talking about all of, all of Yiddishkeit. Okay? 
all the Jews believed that he was the Messiah, including the big rabbis. And of course, they were wrong. But at this time, this messianic fever was happening. So there was a particular Jewish rabbi who believed ardently that um, that around the same time period that the Messiah would come when there were Jews in every single nation. Okay, And at that time, the only known nation that did not have any Jews in it was England, the United Kingdom. Why? Because the United Kingdom had... Um, expelled all the Jews uh, because of anti-Semitism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so this uh, rabbi, and forgive me, I don't have his name in front of me, but he went and he spoke to uh, Cromwell, and he said to Cromwell, listen, if you allow the Jews to come to the United Kingdom, then uh, I, will, I will make sure that we do not uh, proselytize any English. So... That was the deal because the English, uh, amongst others, were very concerned. They didn't want Jews proselytizing. Can you imagine why? Because you imagine all the going out to start proselytizing using the scripture, and uh, basically it's going to be a losing proposition for the church. You know. So anyway, imagine if that were if the Jews back then were allowed to freely proselytize. But anyway, that's 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 another story. But anyway, so uh, he tells Cromwell, "Listen, we're not we're going not going to." Um, we're not gonna. Uh, we're not gonna convert anybody. We won't do And even if somebody comes and knocks on our doors and says, "Please convert me," we're gonna t- turn them away. And so that's what happened. So historically, uh, Cromwell agreed that, that he allowed the Jews to come to the United Kingdom. Of course, you have to understand this rabbi. It wasn't that he was against conversion, but his in his mind, it was uh, what we used to say in the Marine Corps. It was a good initiative, poor judgment is that he thought that, hey, listen, it doesn't matter because when the Jews come to England and begin to settle down, then the Messiah will come and everybody will get converted anyway. So it doesn't matter if we're converting you because as soon as we come to England, the Mashiach will come and then all of you will become Jews anyway. And so there you go. Well, obviously, that was good initiative, poor judgment, because they came to England and now they have to abide by their word. And they became ardent about it. So people would actually come to synagogues in England and say, hey, I'm not Jewish, but I want to become a Jew. And they would say, no way, Jose. They were equal opportunity. So they sent him away. And they said, nope. And so what happened next? England becomes the, the basically the, the conquering world power. The sun never sets on the British Empire. And so now, fast forward a few decades, a few centuries, now you have proud English Jews, all in this uh, historical uh, work I've, I've been reading, you have these proud English Jews who now it's become like a, uh, it's become like an ethic. Like, we do not proselytize. Not only that, we do not accept converts. It's become like this, uh, this ingrained thing. And now you have Jews all over the world who are English with this same mindset. And so that develops into a mindset of we don't accept converts, we do not proselytize which, of course, historically is not true at all, but because England became basically the world power, I mean, the United States, our our birth is from England, of course, and so that's why you have the mindset that you have uh, uh, among jewelry today is because it all goes back to this agreement with Cromwell, but it has nothing to do with Torah because actually the, the, the God said, go and be a light to the Gentiles. What does that mean? 
It means that when somebody comes and says, hey, listen, I love your lifestyle. It's awesome. I can see that you're very blessed. I can see that you're very happy. I can see that you really know God. And so, you know, I'll, I'm drawn to that. And so we tell them, this is how the logic works. Somebody, come, a non-Jew comes to you, right? And says, I see that you're Jewish, yes. And I see that you're very happy, very knowledgeable, you know God, yes. I see that you live your life very holy, yes. And, you know, I'm drawn to that. And we say to them, you know what? You should, uh, you should believe in God, but don't live like me at all. Because what you're drawn to is not for you. Now, I want you to think about something, because I want you to use your brains, because you're very smart people listening to me this morning. What would be the point? You know, you drive, you, you walk by a cookie place, right? And they are, they're baking cookies. I know I'm, all, I'm on a tangent right now. I'm so sorry. You, you're, you're baking cookies, right? And so um, the proprietor of the cookie shop is making sure that the fragrance of the cookies that are baking are going everywhere all around the place, right? So when you walk by, you smell the oatmeal raisin, you smell the chocolate chip, you smell the sugar cookies, whatever. And so, man, man, those smell good. And so you walk up to the counter and say, hey, listen, you're baking cookies? Yes, I am. What are you baking? I'm baking chocolate chip. I'm baking uh, oatmeal raisin, sugar cookies, and other type of cookies that smell so delicious. I want one. Oh, that's why I'm baking. That's why I put the fragrance out there. But you know what? Here is a hot dog. What? I want a cookie. That's the fragrance I'm smelling. I know you want a cookie. You're drawn to the cookie smell, but you get the hot dog. All right, so it says the laws of valuation are not related to market prices or some other scale that we can understand. A person may be the wisest of all men or a fool, but his assessment remains fixed at 50 shekels as long as he is between the ages of 20 and 60. Thus, according to the opinion of Ibn Ezra and many other scholars, these laws are classified as hukim, that is, arbitrary decrees and are not subject to logical analysis. So at the end of the day, we really don't know. However, there is an interesting insight that um, uh, that uh, Rabbi Monk brings down here. Talks about im nekevahi. She is a female. So it says, since a woman has fewer mitzvot to perform than a man, her valuation is lower. This is one of the ideas. The value of thirty shekels happens to be the damages one must pay for a slave who was killed according to Exodus 21.32. And as a result, it just so happens that this uh, value is the same uh, as, uh, I'm sorry, it says this is significant, rather, because a slave has the same number of mitzvahs to, to, to fulfill as a woman. So this is one of the theories, that perhaps the value of a woman is less in this case. In term, by, let, me, let me specify, because I just said the value of a woman. I don't, I'm, we're not talking, the Torah is not talking here about the value of the human being. We're talking about here with respect to, to making a vow. If you're going to vow a monetary amount to the temple, and you're going to base that amount on the value of a, of a person, then in this case, if that person is a female, then the valuation is going to be lower than, than it had it been a male. This is not talking about the value of the human being. I want to be very clear about that. Okay, this is not saying that the Torah values women less than men. This is, has to do with vows being made as a temple offering. And that one of the suggestions here being put forth is that this is because the woman 
not just any women in general have fewer mitzvahs to perform than men. Now there's a reason for that because someone might hear that and say, well, that's not fair. Why do women have fewer mitzvahs to perform than men? Well, the answer of course is that women have fewer mitzvahs to perform than men because they are naturally more spiritual than men. That's the idea that uh, Judaism has had with respect to women for a long time. But then one might ask the question, well, if that's the case, then why isn't her value more than a man? And the answer is, we don't know. This is just what God has ordained. Now, having said all of that, I should point out that because the discussion here is about mitzvahs, we have to understand that our value ultimately is the Torah. Now, that is something that's beautiful. Our value is not based upon uh, our intelligence. Our value is not based upon the color of our skin. It's not va- based upon what country we're from. It's not based on our physical phys- uh, uh, physique or lack thereof. Our value is based on Torah, and Torah is Hashem, and therefore our value is based in Him. And because it's based in Him, then He can make that value whatever He wants, and we don't know why. Up, only God knows. There is something cute here, although I, I don't I don't know if it was intended to be cute, but it is cute to me anyway. Rabbi Monk did, brings down that it, whereas a female's value is less, again, I want to emphasize, we're talking here about vows to the temple, not the value of the human being. But anyway, the female value is less than the man's. However, as the age uh, category gets older, the man's value ostensibly becomes less than the female's, or, or at least his, his, his rate of depreciation is faster than a female's. That's true. And so it says here, the man's value falls less than, than a third of his earlier value, whereas the woman's value falls exactly one third. And a popular saying is that an old man is a burden in the house, where an old woman is a treasure in the house. <laughs> Right? It reminds me of a sign I saw one time where it talks about something to the effect of my husband is retired, so I, now I have twice the husband and half the pay. So I want to uh, transition now and go back in, the, in the, the time that we have remaining and look at a few um, Midrash uh, statements that we didn't get a chance to. So I mentioned that in a, in a previous aliyah that the Torah is likened to a warrior here in the Midrash Rabbah. And then it says here, let the stone protect against the stone. So I just want to read right quick because um, I, I didn't get a chance. We ran out of time when I was reading this. I get, didn't get a chance to read the footnote here. And I'm, I'm in Midrash Rabbah Bekotai 35, section 5, in case anybody is has the Midrash Rabbah. So it says, the point being made here is that the Torah is so powerful that studying it, one subdues his evil inclination. As the Gemara Kudashim 30b teaches, if this repulsive one, referring to the evil inclination, engages you, draw him into the study hall. If he is like a stone, he will be dissolved. Studying the Torah, which is like a stone, will neutralize the power of the evil inclination in you. So, 
we have to understand that the way in which we overcome the power of the evil inclination is to study uh, God's holy Torah. So, um, just moving along here, I want to share something else. There was an insight. Um, there's a statement in the Midrash Rabbah that the, the, the Torah is like a sword and a scroll. It says here, Abaratia was taught in the name of Rabbi Eliezer. The sword and the Torah scroll were given from heaven, intertwined. And the Holy One, blessed be He, said to the people of Israel, If you observe what is written in the scroll, you will be saved from the sword. But if the sword would ultimately slay you, but if not, rather, the sword will ultimately slay you, and where there is an indication of such matters, is that which is stated, God drove out the man and stationed at the east of the Garden of Eden, the cherubim and the flame of the ever-turning sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis 3.24. Now, the famous statement that Yeshua makes to Kepha when when the uh, temple guards come to arrest Yeshua, Kepha, brave Kepha, draws out his sword and he he um, presumes to <clears throat> to fight the uh, temple guards to protect the Mashiach. And the Mashiach tells him, he says, put away your sword, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And many people have interpreted that improperly. And even today it's used to, uh, believe it or not, I know you, I say believe it or not, but anything's believable nowadays, to teach against uh, owning guns and, and things like that, right? We, anybody can, you know, anybody can, can misuse scripture. But anyway, if we look at this discussion in Midrash, to live by the sword is to live a life of disobedience. And so Mashiach is telling Kepha, this is what I came to do. I must be obedient to what I am called to do. So therefore, if you live according to disobedience, you will die by the sword. Those who live by the sword, a.k.a. disobedience, will die by the sword. That's what it's talking about here. Conversely, if we live by Torah law, then we will live according to Torah. So there's an entire insight uh, here that talks about this uh, reality um, that it says to perform, uh, I, I'm sorry, it says that he studies the Torah, man studies the Torah, he performs righteous deeds, he refines his character. With each passing day, he retrieves yet another part of the essence of his eternal life. We talk about the fact that the Torah is divine and eternal. When we study it, when we obey it, when we live it, we are actually bringing into our very essence the, the elements of life. One by one, he regathers the scattered treasures of his truest existence and fashions them, uh, fashions of them the fabric of the eternal dwelling he will occupy in the world to come. <clears throat> The number, numbered days of mortal man are transfigured through his efforts infusing with the fragrance of a higher world. The transcendent becomes internal. In the lives of the people of the scroll, the death represented by the physical world retreats before the eternal life of the soul. The passage of a day represents not death but life, for their days are, are not truly de departed, but rather live on forever in the world to come. In other words, 
If we live our life in disobedience to God's Torah, then we are living a life in which we are headed towards death. Every day we die a little bit. That's the sad reality. The moment somebody is born, that's the moment they draw closer to the grave. That's the unfortunate reality of human life. And uh, that's a result of sin. However, we can, instead of living a life in which we inch closer to death, if we live a life in Torah, if we live a life in obedience to God's word, we are living a life where we're inching closer towards life. Let me explain. We started out this week on Sunday. The first day of the week is Sunday, right? Yom Rishon. Well, depending on how you look at it, if we start out the week, we are working our way, if we're Sabbath observers, if we are Shomer Shabbos, we are working our way towards the Sabbath. What does the Sabbath represent? The Sabbath represents the world to come. So we're working our way towards the Shabbat. That, that means we're working our way towards life. But if we do not do that, if we, if we begin with the first day of the week and we're working our way towards the first day of the week, in other words, we're ignoring the Sabbath and we've made, uh, I'm just going to say it because uh, millions of people live this way, Sunday is our day of worship. Well, the Sunday is the first day of the week. In other words, we're working our, 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 our lives towards the mundane. Does that make sense? We have to be living a life in which we're, we're called to life. And remember, the Torah is life. In fact, there is. I was just looking just a second ago in, uh, in, in Midrash Tankuma, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Midrash, no, I'm sorry, yes, that's true, Midrash Tankuma Bamin Bar, where it refers again to the Torah as the light of the world. The Torah is the tree of life. When we partake of the Torah, we partake of the tree. Now, a couple more things as we conclude. And tomorrow I'm going to, with God's help, finish everything I wanted to read here in the, um, the Midrash Rabbah. But let me just give these two statements as, as we're going to close out here. So it says, Rabbi Hama, the son of Rabbi Hinina, said, God thus said to the people of Israel, If you observe the mitzvahs of the Torah, I will reckon it to you as if you... As if... Uh, you yourselves made it. Wow, wait, whoa. <laughs> Another explanation of the phrase, and you shall perform them. Rabbi Hanita Bar Papai said, it can be interpreted as you and you shall make yourselves. God thus said to them, if you observe the Torah, I will reckon it for you as if you had made yourselves. Another explanation of the phrase, and you shall perform them, Rabbi Hayya taught Eberesha, it is to teach that the verse is referring to one who studies the Torah in order to practice what he learns, not one who studies without any intention to practice what he learns. This sounds like, sounds just like Yaakov writing his letter, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So it says, as to one who studies without any intention to practice, it would be better for him had he not been created. The one who studies Torah in order to practice what he learns merits to receive the divine spirit. And by the way, according to Midrash uh, Teruma, Midrash Rabbah Teruma 33.5, the Torah and the divine spirit are one and the same. 
end of our Aliyah today. I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful, and amazing day. We will be back tomorrow for the conclusion of uh, this portion and the, re- the conclusion of the entire book of Vayikra. Looking forward to that. Hope you have a blessed day. Look forward to seeing everybody tomorrow. Please be safe out there. Prayerfully, nobody's having any bad weather. Uh, only sunshine and daffodils and uh, fun in the sun. Shalom and blessings. See you then.